This week on the Vergecast, Tom Warren joins us to talk all about Zoom. We talk a little bit about the T-Mobile Sprint acquisition, finally closed. That's one company now. And we get into Apple and what it's doing with video apps on the Apple TV. And they bought DarkSide. It's a big deal. Coming up now on the Vergecast. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking. So why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to the Vergecast. The flagship podcast of working from home forever. No, it's great. It's going to be a fun one. Hello. No, it's going to be forever. (laughs) uh, Every day it changes. How long is forever? You'll never know unless you listen to this, the Vergecast. I'm your friend, Neil. That was Paul. Hello. (laughs) He's having an emotional breakdown. Dieter Bone is here. There's a further seems forever joke somewhere in here, but I'm going to let it go. Well, we'll come back to it. Our friend Tom Warren is here. Hey, Tom. Hello from across the pond. Yeah, Tom's in England, but we're all at home. So even though we're in different places physically, we're all trapped in the same place, literally. Emotionally. We're all just stuck in Zoom. That's why you're here, Tom. We got to talk about Zoom. So as always, we're recording from home. I'm hoping that you yourself are at home. If you are so able to stay at home, I hope you're staying safe. If you're working, we thank you. you know, I, uh, we realize there's some risk to that. So if you're at home, stay home. If you have to go out, please stay safe. Uh, let us know uh, if our quality is, is staying up there. I think we're doing all right, but I just want to put it out there. We are all recording this from home. But I think Andrew, our producer, is doing a pretty pretty good job making us sound okay. So I want to. there's a lot to talk about. Tom is here to talk about Zoom, which is, I would say, one of the biggest stories in tech due to the virus and everybody staying at home. Uh, we don't talk about T-Mobile Sprint. There's all kinds of stuff to talk about. But I want to start with the virus itself. I don't want to belabor it, but you know, we put the show out on Fridays. And three Fridays ago, they, Donald Trump held up a flowchart and said, someone Neil, is building a website. You're killing me. Why? Because it, it, it's never going to come. It's never going to happen. I'm so good at counting days since something was <laughs> promised that doesn't happen. It's I got one skill as an editor, and it's just keeping track of time. You know what? That, that website is being developed in a uh, factory near uh, Racine, Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. Trump held up a sign promising 5G AI 8K. <laughs> Killing me. Anyway, it's been three Fridays since the flowchart. I will uh, keep you updated as Fridays go on. Hopefully somebody builds the website and we increase testing. That would be great. I'd like to see it happen. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. Second, as the sort of virus and the staying at home ripples out into the broader economy, uh, one person and his companies are sort of at the center of a lot of things. Uh, that person is Jeff Bezos, who famously owns Amazon. 
Whole Foods, uh, Blue Origin, a space company. So Josh Jezza has been doing a lot of reporting on Amazon warehouse workers, uh, Whole Foods workers. They have been walking off the job because they don't feel protected from uh, disease transmission. They don't feel like they have the appropriate equipment. They don't feel the warehouses are, are being cleaned. Today, after a bunch of walkouts throughout the country, Amazon said it was going to start checking people's temperature who are working in the warehouses and giving masks to people. So you're just seeing this curve of Amazon, which, to be fair, is very important to a lot of people right now because people are shopping from home. Jeff Bezos himself said all he's really thinking about uh, is COVID-19 and Amazon's role in it. So we're tracking that very closely. Read Josh's reporting. It's really good. And then also today, Lauren Grush, uh, our excellent space reporter, published Big Scoop. Uh, Bezos owns Blue Origin. Uh, and the and the staff of Blue Origin, the, the engineers, technicians, are very upset because they're pushing forward with um, – uh, a launch, which is the schedule's up in the air, but they're pushing forward with some testing and a launch. And people who work in Washington state might have to travel to rural Texas, which seems like a bad idea, um, to work on this. And there's just a lot of uproar over whether pushing forward with what is effectively a space tourism business uh, is actually necessary and important right now. So there's some controversy there. It's interesting to me that it's it's all around Bezos. Like, He's uh, he's a self-styled leader. He wants to be a leader, and he's got this collection of companies that are sort of experiencing some controversy about their role in the crisis. So go read Lauren's report. It's great. She actually had – we reviewed audio from one of these meetings. They got a little contentious. There's some quotes in there that are pretty good. That's really interesting. I think we're going to see how this plays out, and particularly how folks like Bezos, some of the other big tech leaders – embrace that role as leaders, embrace their role uh, running companies are very important to a lot of people right now. So I, I don't want to overdo it. just want to call it out. It's some great work that's happening over there. Okay. Now, I don't know if it's entirely surprising that the Zoom story, because Zoom has had a pretty controversial history. We've talked about some of that controversial history here. But Tom, you've been covering a, a lot of Zoom stories lately. Uh, give us a rundown on what is going on with Zoom. Yeah. So Zoom, the basic thing is that it has soared in popularity um, over the past sort of few weeks as this coronavirus stuff has spread and everyone's sort of working at home we've seen people use it for yoga classes beers with friends on a friday and even people getting married on it um so it's kind of it's we've been using zoom for years and it's probably we're on zoom right now we're on zoom right now um (laughs) i don't think anyone would have guessed that people would be doing yoga classes and getting married on zoom like that's not a story anyone could have predicted as much as this virus so everyone's kind of flocked to it for for whatever reason um and i've got some theories but yeah it's had a huge influx of people and they revealed today back in december they had 10 million um, participants, however you want to judge that, whether that's a daily active user or not. And now they have 200 million daily participants in meetings. So that's a massive, like, that's it. And we've seen Teams has gone up, um, their competitors and Microsoft Teams, you mean? Microsoft Teams, yeah. And Cisco, I think, of around about 300 million, so, so something like that. And that's in Cisco WebEx. Yeah, WebEx. So there's a lot of activity going on on video calls. House parties, like number one or number two in the App Store. Um, there's a lot going on, but Zoom has become the particular focus for consumers and even businesses and just like a lot of the press attention is on Zoom right now. Um, so yeah, everyone's using it for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but like what's happening now is we're discovering, um, or, you know, journalists and security researchers are discovering there's a, a bit of a trade-off if you want to use Zoom <laughs> for all of these, uh, 
for these activities. Can I start you way back with the Zoom web server controversy? Because this is months ago. That's true. That that was like last year. Yeah. So before we dig into the controversies, should yeah, we should talk about the one last year. So last year, um, it was discovered that uh, basically it installed a web server on on macOS systems um, to uh, essentially to work like more easily on on that particular operating system. Yeah, actually, I, I I reported on this a bunch. I can give a little bit more color. So like installing a web server on a Mac uh, sounds really bad. Like you put a whole damn web server. I don't want to serve the web, um, <laughs> but it, it, it's like a shorthand way to, for them to get a bunch of like things done that they, so they didn't have to recode it, right? So that in itself isn't necessarily bad, but what was horrific about it is they did it in an insecure way. And, uh, when you uninstalled Zoom, they left the web server on your computer running. And so that if you ever wanted to use Zoom again, they would then be able to reinstall it silently without having to ask you for it because it already had the web server on your Mac, even though you thought you uninstalled it. It was it was like beyond sloppy. And it, it was so sloppy that Apple, for the first time in its history, pushed a silent update to every Mac to remove Zoom's web server, right? It, they had created such a security hole that Apple took pretty unprecedented action like you do not want your operating system vendor to reach into your computer and delete code. Like I think we would normally have a very different reaction to that uh, yeah. for a variety of reasons. <laughs> but here it was like, everyone was like, Oh yeah, Apple, Apple did it. Like they pushed the button. They should have. So that was already the context around zoom. And then there's this explosion in popularity. Tom, what, what's happening since? Yeah. And so, and then in, I think it was like January or February, um, some researchers published some stuff about, um, Essentially, like the core of Zoom and the way it works, like to understand a lot of these privacy and security sort of concerns, is to understand how it works. So, so Zoom, if you've never used it, um, essentially you join a meeting through a link or through an ID, which is like between nine and eleven characters. Um, so, some researchers published some um, some stuff back in, I think it was in January, um, basically saying you could guess these numbers or you could like brute force them. Um, in, in a lot of cases. Um, so there was that, that's like kind of like the underlying issue that's been bubbling for a little bit. And the, the issue there is like, if you know the number, you get you get into the meeting. I mean, this is the reason that Zoom, I think is so popular. Like you don't need a login. You don't necessarily need to create an account. You just have to install an app and everyone knows how to do that these days. Do you really need to install an app? Oh, you can use the web app too. No, I'm saying Zoom will kind of handle that aspect for you. Fair. <laughs> I tried to do a FaceTime call for my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, mom. Um, and like, it took 20 minutes of like tech support, right? Like FaceTime, which is like the definition of easy and everybody has iPhones. It still took some work. So Zoom is popular because it's dead simple to use, but that, but because it, you just need the link, it, that's like scary because anybody can jump on your call. So Tom, you're saying because you can guess these, you get, that's how you get Zoom bombing. Well, not necessarily. I think a lot of it is also people are setting up like yoga classes, sharing them on Facebook. It's pretty easy for trolls to, you know, find those links um, and share them on 4chan and wherever else and so i think you're you're just getting a collection of those links being found and just shared around and just the massive increase in in it but i think at the heart of the issues is, it's obviously it's very easy to get into those calls because people don't password protect them but that's also at the heart of the issues is that the defaults that zoom set up to allow it um the defaults are like you know you just get into the call with the id there's there's no like you have to use a password or anything like that 
because um, it brings that barrier to entry down, right? Um, and also when you come into the call, anyone, anyone who joins the call by default can broadcast their video, can broadcast their screen. So it's like these these defaults that they've put there because it's much easier for consumers and not consumers, but just for like anyone to jump on a call and start talking um, are also kind of hurting them now. Because um, that's, that's like the key part of Zoom bombing. Like if I get a link of someone it's probably 90% certain that they haven't password protected it. They haven't changed the, the defaults so that whenever you join a call, you have to like approve someone to, you know, show their video or share the screen. Um, so you're just praying, you're preying on those defaults and defaults are always the killer with any, with any app. If you, if you by default allow, you know, your users to do certain things, then someone, you know, is going to come in and be the bad guy and show you that your defaults are, are bad. And so that that's like to me is just a scale problem, right? They made it very easy and then they scaled this massive thing. And then there's a question about should we change the defaults to lock it down? Will that affect user growth, whatever? Then there's like, should Zoom moderate meetings? We talked about that a little bit last week. It that feels very fraught. Like, do you want Zoom employees watching your meeting? Like, I do not just flatly do not want that to happen. But maybe you want that for a bunch of teenagers. Like I, so that's just scale problems. They're very hard, but they're problems that like are understood, right? They, they just come with massive scale and then like bad actors. They're problems that like you you like tut tut Zoom for setting the default to not have a password, but you don't like get necessarily like deeply angry at them for trying to like for for being evil, right? Uh, but then, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not problems where it's like you had malicious intent. It's like, we, we just understand the category of things that are massive scale problems. Right. But like the, the question of, do we give zoom the benefit of the doubt? Uh, like there you're like, okay, sure. But like Tom, like there's, there's other stuff going on with zoom and security, right? Yeah. It's not just that. So alongside the zoom bombing stuff, I think the zoom bombing stuff really kind of has been at the center of it. But um, alongside that, um, there was some stuff about them sharing data with Facebook, which again, I think is like them allowing people to sign in with their Facebook accounts and using those credentials um, rather than something that's necessary. You know, like it's not necessarily them sharing ad space in your Zoom meeting, if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt there, but they have the potential to do that. So um, they've had to change those they've had to yank that code out on the ios side at least and rewrite parts of their privacy policy to to be like because obviously whenever these issues come up people look at the privacy policy they can see what the company can do and they immediately go okay that's what the company's doing it's not necessarily that that's what the company is doing but it's capable of doing so then they have to like you know tie up that privacy policy so, so we've seen them do that as well and they did, well, there was one with LinkedIn was, today too, right? Yeah, there's another one today. Um, the New York Times reporters have discovered. I've read it and I've like looked into it, but I, I need someone like from a security researcher background to really go over it because it's kind of strange what they're seeing. But essentially, what it is is it seems like Zoom is doing some sort of data mining to match profiles or LinkedIn profiles to whoever's using Zoom, and that might manifest in like say say I joined this call as Tom Warren. And then I didn't have my LinkedIn profile linked at all or anything like that. They might have saved that information and maybe my hardware ID or something about my computer to sort of pinpoint who I am. And then if I join another call and it's like, I'm anonymous, Tom, you know, like whatever name I want to use, then someone on that call who has enabled the integration of LinkedIn would be able to find out that I actually my name's Tom Warren and it's trying to match me to that Tom Warren LinkedIn profile. 
Um, so there's obviously some privacy issues there um, because not every single Zoom call that you want to be on do you want to be revealing your name and your occupation and whatever else. So this one is, to me, again, I don't know the answer here. I don't know if... I don't either, yeah. No, but like the answer to the question of is Zoom doing some growth hacky stuff that innocent people do and they just didn't consider scale or are they Facebook, (laughs) (laughs) right? Where like the the growth hacky stuff is a little more malicious and and cynical than you'd expect. And so like that one to me is like Zoom is enterprise software. Like it's made for businesses. There are very few corporate functions where I need to be like, I'm going to this meeting, but I need to be anonymous. Like there are many times where you take a meeting and it would be useful to be like, who is this person on this 45 person Zoom call talking? Oh, it's just showing me some LinkedIn data, right? Like th- that would be useful in that environment. Now we've extended Zoom to this environment, like you're saying. People are getting married. There are yoga classes. There are, therapy is happening in Zoom. There's all these new uses of consumers just using the tool where you might want to be anonymous. We would expect your anonymity. And then this corporate feature is like, steamrolling you and you had no idea it was happening. Yeah, you're right. But like we're, we're building up to like that. I don't know. Like it's increasingly difficult to say, yeah, maybe they're innocent. Yeah. Maybe they just are like a little dumb. Like as we go. I mean, that's why I wanted to start with months ago. They had this problem. Like this isn't a new set of concerns. This is last year before any of this happened. The question mark was, is zoom an innocent or do they do this weird installer hack that Apple had to undo knowing it was like one tick. Speaking of weird installer hacks. Uh, yeah, there's another one. <laughs> Speaking of that. Oh, there's so we're going to do this for 45 minutes. If you're not interested in the intricacies of zoom, uh, well, you got nowhere to go. So stay right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Todd. So two days ago, someone tweeted, um, it was basically a software engineer tweeted, um, that essentially zoom is using, like malware-like techniques to install itself on macOS. And basically what that means in in easy terms is it's basically, it will prompt you for like a username and password to like get the core security part of macOS and then it can just automate everything else and just, you know, install on your system without popping up a load of pop-ups. And, you know, like when you install an app, you have to click through and agree to the licensing agreement, all that sort of stuff. They just want it to be as one click as possible. Um, which, you know, again, you can kind of understand from a user thing, but using malware-like techniques is probably not the way to get there. Wasn't there a piece of this, Tom, that where it's like, if your computer is administered by your company, that some of Zoom, some of these techniques that Zoom is using actually gets around it. So if, you know, my sysadmin for Vox Media Max doesn't want us to use Zoom, theoretically, this could get around that. Yeah, I think it, it, it gets around some of that stuff. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's it's not great. It's like trying to trying to capture user credentials and you know bypass security that's built into an operating system is, you know, not not the way to go. <laughs> I mean, at, at one point, I believe that that it it would pop up a dialog box that identified itself as system and ask for your password. Woof. Which is you shouldn't do. That. Also, can we be clear that there's a typo in the pop up? It says system need your privilege to change. <laughs> Yes. All right. If you're gonna hack my Mac, get get it, get the grammar right. <laughs> it's like the typical phishing email. You know? yeah. yeah, everything looks a little wonky. Uh, look, guys, at least at least Zoom tells us that it's end to end encrypted. <laughs> wait, wait, oh, wait, 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 
I want to finish the installer thing because I feel like we're going to argue about encryption a lot. Okay. Uh, so, Tom, they, they've changed the installer today. Yeah, so two days after the Zoom CEO responded to the guy who, you know, brought up these issues, they've changed the installer today and just totally walked back all that all that stuff. So that's that's good. But it does make you wonder why they, you know, it took someone on Twitter to make them change that kind of sketchy behavior. Yeah. Okay, so then this brings us to end-to-end encryption, which is more fundamentally like a vocabulary debate. No, than almost it wasn't. anything. <laughs> it was never a debate. Well, here I'll just do the the story of the reporting, and then we can get into the substance of it. The, the Zoom says it's end to end encrypted, which charitably is uh, something that rhymes with the truth. It's <laughs> the most charitable. I'll be there. So they they say it. The Intercept points out, like, this isn't true. Like, even their own white papers say it's not true. And then Zoom is like, oh, we were just using a shorthand, like. That was their excuse. And then they published a, another blog post today explaining how they think their system works, apologizing for using it, and then walking it back. Paul, explain the, the technical detail here. How I think when I hear the term end-to-end encryption is like, imagine a horseshoe, right? So I send a message up, up one leg of the horseshoe, right? It goes through like signal servers, right? but the message is still encrypted. They're just passing it along to its destination. That it goes to its destination and it's decrypted on the other leg, you know, the person I was sending the message to, right? The Zoom is using the, the, the classic two straws technique. The message is, is encrypted over the wire, just like HTTPS, because it is HTTPS. Or it's the TLS encryption. It's just the basic encryption we use for websites. It's just transport encryption. Transport encryption. Thank you. And so it goes through the straw, and then it's unencrypted on Zoom servers. Then it's re-encrypted to go over the wire again to the destination. Uh, wait, why is that straws? Well, I was just thinking of two things. I mean, you could cra- <laughs> crack the horseshoe in half. You were like I don't the know. classic two straws <laughs> method. I was like, I don't. I also, like, I a horseshoe is one hunk of metal. It's not like two things <laughs> and then a server in the middle. No, we cannot. I didn't want to, Imagine one bendy straw. Welcome to the Vergecast <laughs> where we argue about metaphors until we're dead. But the point here is Zoom is saying the ends are encrypted. <laughs> right? And like the two is like up for debate. <laughs> like extreme debate. So they published a diagram today. I would say the easier, the, maybe the easier way to think about this is when we talk about iMessage or whatever, it's who has the keys, right? Usually when you think of end-to-end encrypted, the service provider does not have the key to decrypt the message, right? So Apple, depending on whether or not you're in China or whether you have any set of complicated iMessage in the cloud settings turned on, Apple generally does not have the keys to your messages. And they're very proud of that fact that they push it out in the world. The users have the keys. So Apple is moving moving the messages between users, and then you have the keys to decrypt decrypt your stuff. Zoom, in this case, has the key. And all they're saying is, in the middle, in the cloud, we're not using the key. If you're using what they call Zoom endpoints, so the app uh, on a phone, the app on a a laptop, a Zoom room, which is just the app running on a Chromebox, but I guess we can call it a Zoom room, those are their endpoints, and that all stays encrypted. That is not end-to-end encrypt. That's why it's like it rhymes with the truth. Like, it is not the truth. It has, like, a rhyming, like, relationship to the truth. Like, what they're saying, if end-to-end encryption did not have a commonly accepted meaning, right? But here it doesn't. 
Then they have the problem of people call into Zoom using telephone lines, using other weird services. You can call into Zoom with Skype in some weird way, right? So they've built connectors inside of their cloud system to decrypt the stuff and send it out over those connections, which are obviously not encrypted, right? If they wanted to be end-to-end -end encrypted, I'm not sure how they could ever build the telephone bridge or the Skype bridge or whatever. And so why even tell this lie? Yeah. Like this, that's the thing I don't understand. I don't really get that. Apparently their text chat is end-to-end -end encrypted, but I don't trust a single thing. And to be honest, I wouldn't have reinstalled Zoom. Like when all this happened, like last year, I tried to completely... It's difficult, but I tried to get all of Zoom off of my computer <laughs> and I had not used it until the, the virus hit and, you know, people want to hang out. Yeah. And I think that is, uh, I want to make sure we keep talking about Zoom, but to me, that is a, it is a criticism we have faced because we keep covering what people are doing in Zoom. And so like, do I want to write a story that's like this bride who got married in Zoom because of the virus ruining her plans use the wrong software for my personal moral reasons. Mm. <laughs> that doesn't seem like the correct angle into that story. Like there is an emergent class of cultural behavior happening in zoom that is interesting and worth talking about. And then there's zoom's responsibility to its users, especially that new class of users who is not attuned to worrying about whether secret web servers are going to install them on the Mac, who is not attuned to, Hey, this one click installation is pretty shady. Who is not attuned to, oh, I'm going to actually dig into what they mean by end-to-end -end encrypted, whether they're just using the phrase any way they want, or whether it's the commonly accepted thing. They're not attuned to the fact that if you hit record on a Zoom call, I'm sure the person who got married in Zoom hit record, right? That's it. Why? That's your wedding. <laughs> like, I'm confident they hit record. Well, that file is on Zoom servers, and Zoom employees can watch it because they have the key. That stuff is to me, particularly damning. I also think you could blame a little bit of the install shenanigans on operating system vendors. Like there are easier ways to get software. You could imagine them having better sandboxing. I know there's another Zoom vulnerability with like links to network on stuff. On the Windows side, like, yeah. Yeah. So, but like you could imagine an operating system that you could have, uh, you'd click a link in the browser, you'd get a native app running on your desktop that wouldn't be dangerous, you know, like that could just work. Or, you know, Apple could make it Mac App Store, not like anti-developer. And so you could just send people right there and like you do on the phone. And people are pretty comfortable installing apps on the phone. It's kind of a fundamental flaw with desktop operating systems. Like, you know, you said you can imagine an operating system where you click a link and then you go into the native app. That's literally like iOS, you know. Like that, that, that's what literally happens on that side of things. Um, but yeah, like they have to work around all of these weird oddities with desktop operating systems whilst also trying to exploit the fact that you can do so much more on those desktop operating systems. Um, but I think ultimately it's like with any of this stuff, it's like a balance of ease of use, privacy and security and all that sort of stuff. Um, and like it's trust in Zoom, like whether we can trust Zoom. Like we had these issues last year. We've obviously got a ton of issues now. And I'm sure by the time this, by the time people even listen to this, there'll be more. Like this isn't ending. Like they've got such a focus on them now that people are going to discover a bunch of stuff. And it really, it depends on how the 200 million or however many people are using it, um, like respond to all this sort of stuff. Like do they 
we've seen it with Google and Facebook. Like they've had privacy issues, like for for sure they've had a ton, but they they have good products and people still flock to them in their millions. Um, and there's that that issue of trust. You know, people trust these companies. Do we trust Zoom? Like that's that. I think that's at the heart of it. Do we do we trust Zoom to fix this stuff now that they've been found out? And do people trust to use it? So they, but they they announced a big move today, right? Yeah. So so today they basically said we're freezing all of our features. So like no new features, no snazzy stuff um, for the next ninety days. And we're going to do essentially like a software review on on Zoom to figure out you know all of the uh, privacy issues and and the security issues that have been raised. Work with third parties and just do like a bit of an audit essentially and try and fix some of this stuff up. So they've given themselves 90 days to really fix all of the issues. I mean, there's going to be more, like we just said, um, but at least it was a, like a quick response, I guess. And the, the CEO is also holding a weekly webinar. Which is, you know, that's that's good. I mean, that's like a little bit of transparency, at least. I started out talking about Bezos and like Casey in the newsletter is just banging the drum that like Bezos should be issuing a briefing about Amazon status every week like it's a, it, Amazon is like that important that it it makes sense that they would give us a weekly status report I'm like um, I was talking to Casey last night actually and he was like it is crazy that Amazon hasn't said anything to its customers like the Amazon product of like push a button and get something sent to your house is like extremely degraded right now and Amazon hasn't said a word about it. they're just like powering through it whereas like okay zoom is like our CEO is going to be in a zoom call every week talking about privacy and security while we freeze all features like that. Those are radically different ends of the spectrum. I think the question for me still is, was this stuff, were these mistakes? Were they solutions where somebody didn't think about the stakes of those solutions at the scale, which is less forgivable than mistakes, but still, you know, on the spectrum of forgivability, or is this reflective of a company culture that doesn't actually respect users that doesn't actually respect privacy? And like, that is the big question. When you say, do you trust Zoom? To me, that is the question by far. I think that is the thing. Because like, you can see from some of the stuff they've done, the installer stuff, the stuff last year with the web server, like some of that is is probably, you know, to, to, to take away some of the friction of using your product. Um, but it's also very growth hacky. It's very, very, it looks malicious. It just looks terrible when you get found out doing it. Um, so like, have they considered those options? Did they think, oh, you know, what's going to happen when people audit us? And it's, it's pretty clear they haven't really considered that. And that's like such a typical thing with a startup, like security is always second, you know, it's like, how do we, how do we get users? That's the primary thing. And they don't think about the privacy and security aspects until it's too late. And we see this all too often. But Zoom is like, what is it? Eight years old. It has a market cap of $34 billion. Like, do you, do you give them the startup benefit of the doubt? Like, I, I think that's like another big question is they're, they're in a place right now where so many people have never heard of them and they're hearing about Zoom for the first. Somebody was actually tweeting me yesterday. Like, it seems concerning that Zoom came out of nowhere like this. I'm like, eight years old, $34 billion market cap. Like, they didn't come out of nowhere. They're just having this moment. But they get to ride along the like, oh, we're a startup. We didn't think about it. Like, I, think, I think they, yeah, they've got the thing that everyone wants, right? So it's free. You can use it for 40 minutes. You can have like up to 100 people in it, which is like their competitors just don't have that. Like there's there's no real match that's free. And I think that's just, that gives them a lot of the ability to go massive like we've seen, but it's also just shining a massive light on 
the mistakes they've made. And I think they just need to take these 90 days and look at like the decisions they've made for the product um, and whether it's worth those trade-offs, you know? Yeah. And then I think uh, on the other side of it, they have a lot of competitors at big, well-funded, established companies, right? And it's like, you wrote about Skype and how Microsoft has blown it with Skype completely ever since they acquired Skype. And like those companies are, they are on the attack. Oh yeah. But they're not like, this is a moment for them to, to claw back from zoom. And I think that's a, just another kind of pressure, which is good in many ways. That is just competitive market pressure um, that I'm like happy to see, but there's no network effect with zoom. Like once you use zoom once, it doesn't have like your social graph or whatever. Like it's pretty easy to switch from zoom. And so I, I'm curious if you see people, over time, just like move away from Zoom because this round of, of backlash actually took hold and they tried something else. And it, it doesn't matter if like switching is easy, so they, they might as well stay with something else. Well, I'm also curious to see how much like them scaling up to this amount of people has cost them. Like that, that's it's quite a thing to go from like 10 million to 200 million in the space of like a few months. That's like massive growth. And when your product is like essentially free. Like 40 minutes is, you know, everyone just thinks that's <laughs> that's a meeting time in Zoom, I think, that's using it at the moment. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how that impacts them going going forwards, because some of those those choices they're going to have to make in the next 90 days are going to be, you know, business, business model choices. And like, how, do we take it down to like a 10, 20 minute meeting? You know, do we have 50 participants instead of 100? Like all that sort of stuff. Like, I think I think we're about to see Zoom change quite a lot. Yeah. The funny thing to me is, you know, you just said like, it's easy to switch away from Zoom and you're absolutely right. It's easy to switch away from Zoom. It's actually pretty hard to switch to most of the other video chat apps. <laughs> like Microsoft Teams, you got to like figure out what the hell Teams is. Hangouts still exists somehow. And you got to figure out what Hangouts Meet is. Duo only works on phones and like, you know, smart displays. FaceTime requires that everybody have an Apple device. Every other like chat app that happens to have video chat attached to it, you got to sign up for the chat app. Uh, there's actually like a pretty high onboarding cost for almost everything. And that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons Zoom is so successful. Um, but I'm just wondering like, who's going to be the first one to be like, hey, we made it as easy as Zoom. Just here's a link and you're on. <laughs> We've installed a web server. <laughs> uh, well, Dieter, would you like me to read from our list of Zoom alternatives? I would, yes. People do have Skype in the world. It's still there. They they didn't blow it so badly as to kill it. Like, there's Skype. I think WebEx has a free version. Whereby is out there. Like, there's Hangouts exists. It's Blue true. Jeans. Yeah, there's stuff. Blue Jeans actually you can't get unless you pay. Oh, really? Okay. Never mind. Um, but they're, like these companies see the opportunity. Yeah. Right. If you've been operating a, a middling video conference service this whole time and like suddenly like everyone's mad at Zoom, you're like, look at me. <laughs> and that's great. Like I, I applaud that. I think people should look at alternatives. I just think it's tough. And the other thing is like it's the same with Slack. It's the same with Teams. We, we're seeing this pattern over and over again where all of this enterprise software is fundamentally just collaboration software. And lots of consumers for lots of reasons need to collaborate now. So they're using these enterprise tools. Those tools are doing more generous free tiers or doing whatever because they're, they're just hoping to convert to paid at the end. So Tom, you've been looking at that stuff too. What is sort of the status of that, the Slack teams world? Yeah. Well, so Slack versus teams versus zoom Slack is basically coming at it from, we're going to, you know, team up with everyone, team up with zoom and 
Google and whoever else they can get to integrate into their app to take on Microsoft Teams because obviously Microsoft Teams is uh, coming in hard, should we say, um, and really trying to chase them. And I think that sets up some like interesting dynamics with like this whole Zoom situation because if you're if you're like a Microsoft or a Cisco, you've been making some good um, revenue on your on your on your video services and stuff, and you know Zoom's getting a lot of attention. Um, elsewhere like you don't want that to become a thing because it's a freemium product and you know there's going to be plenty of people that will pay for it eventually and it just sets up that interesting dynamic between like it it, it reminds me zoom reminds me of google you know like they're they're basically throwing a product out there for free um hoping that you know a lot of people pick it um and then they'll probably like start charging for it a little bit later on or like you know entice people in and that that just reminds me of like the, the Microsoft and the Cisco's uh basically they don't want their cash cow like their office being pulled away to like you know Google Docs and stuff um and i think what we're going to see is stuff like Slack versus Microsoft Teams is we're going to see these zooms we're going to see more the you know offering stuff that's going to be an alternative to office and whatever else and we're going to see them all sort of kind of like team up and integrate with each other and try and take on Microsoft because Microsoft has clung on to Office for so many years and they they don't ever seem to lose a grip on it. But I feel like there's there's a time coming where someone's going to strike something right with the balance between all of these third party apps and package it all up in the right way. Can I ask a question a little out of ignorance? What is Microsoft Teams? Outside of being Slack, and I assume there's some sort of Office integration. Like- That's pretty much it. It's literally deeply integrating into Office. Uh, Skype is like their video and calling solution within Teams, and it's Slack. The thing with the thing with Slack is that you don't do video calls. Like we're not doing a video call in Slack, and there's a reason for that because Slack video calls aren't good. So you use Zoom, <laughs> <laughs> and like that's that's the drawback to Slack that they have to integrate. And you know, with third parties that are better at doing certain parts, whereas Microsoft's trying to bet on the fact that they can do everything and like sell it as a cheaper package. And to say that all Teams is is uh, Slack made by Microsoft with Office integration, I would put that a different way. I would say, holy shit, Teams is a Slack made by Microsoft with Microsoft integration <laughs> that everybody with Office just gets. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that's just the, there. that's the big thing. Yeah, and they they they're putting it as like. There's such a focus on it as being their hub. So it's, I think it's where we're going to see a lot of the experimentation with whatever they want to do with Office in the future, and especially on the website. There's also just a part where um, Microsoft is bigger at certain kinds of clients than any startup could be because they're Microsoft, right? So I know some IT consultants who like service a lot of law firms, and they're like, I would never put Slack in a law firm. Like, Microsoft just understands what a document retention policy is, and they've had 500 engineers thinking about document retention policies in Microsoft Word for 20 years. It's literally their bread and butter, right? Right. And it's like Slack has like maybe one person who just Wikipedia'd it yesterday, (laughs) right? And like there's just a huge advantage that Microsoft – I'm sure Slack is better. They're they're a great company, but um, not to over-exaggerate, but Microsoft just has that reputation – they have that client relationship. Like, yeah. They've got a huge uh, moat of just having been there, of time, for a product that kind of looks like Slack. And that is pretty good. Like, Teams didn't have channels for like 100 yeah, exactly. years. right? Like, they didn't have basic features that we take for granted in Slack, but they were there. And they had that understanding of, of, 
what some of these bigger corporate clients seen. So I, I do think this is a war. I think the thing that, that Slack and the Zooms are going to rely on is like people loving their products rather than you don't necessarily always love Microsoft products. That's like a thing. You, it's, it's something you use at work. That's like a kind, a kind of common thing. It's like something you're given. It's not something you go out and buy. Um, and I think like that's the thing that Slack and the, all the competitors are going to play on. And we, we've seen it. Like That's their only competitive advantage, really, because they know that Microsoft's a juggernaut. Um, you, you can pay $5 for Zoom. You can pay $5 for G Suite. You can pay five, $5 for Slack. Then you're paying $15. Whereas Microsoft will come in and be like, you can pay $5, you know. All right, we've done 48 minutes on Zoom, which is incredible. I didn't <laughs> expect us to be able to do that. But Tom, before you, uh, we let you go, uh, Microsoft actually did change how 365 works, Microsoft 365. Just tell us about that a little bit. Because it's all it's all in the same zone. Yeah. So essentially, they had Office 365 for consumers, which was basically your Office subscription and a bunch of cloud stuff thrown in, so like storage and all that sort of stuff. Um, they've essentially rebranded that to Microsoft 365 and then tagged a, a few things on top of that. Um, one of those is Microsoft Teams for consumers or for, for home or for life, whatever they're going to call it. A family is a team of sorts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> um and then there's like a safety app um a family safety app which essentially is like a combination of find my friends you know like where you're tracking your um your kids and maybe your husband or wife and and seeing their location and also a combination of screen time so you're seeing how much a device is used and that's going to work across android xbox and windows and not necessarily ios because it's ios and the price is still 6.99 right yep the price is still the same and they've tagged tagged these extra things on um and a a bunch of office things that they've done as well there's a bunch of ai stuff like an editor like kind of like a a grammarly sort of stuff and yeah they kept the price the same which is cool you're getting more for whatever you were paying before um and that's all coming in april a lot of it is coming soon in the following months it's not totally clear exactly when it'll all be available but you can see the the path they're going on um and they're still keeping skype so but they're trying to convince people to also use teams i don't know like there's, there's definitely some sort of clash there there's, there's some tension so. aren't they rewriting skype and electron or something well yes oh, God. <laughs> don't get started on that <laughs> uh how much do i have to pay microsoft to just keep using wonderlist I would pay twenty dollars a month to just keep using Wonderlist <laughs> and not and not have any other part of of Microsoft three sixty five. Just, just not to not have to switch to To Do. The founder tried to buy it back, right? But, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Microsoft To Do is so close to being Wonderlist, and then it's not. Also, I'm just going to say this: if you make a swipey app, and one thing that you can do is delete stuff with a, a swipe. Uh, just consider left-handed people because we are often in the grocery store accidentally deleting items from the grocery list as we walk around the grocery store. I'm not saying that that has happened to me. I'm just saying, please think of left-handed people when you make your swipey app, uh, because I want to get out of the grocery store as fast as possible, uh, lately. So just, just an idea that I have. Uh, I just want to uh, point out that Microsoft 365 for six ninety nine a month, like Dropbox is ten bucks a month. Google One, which basically just gives you Google Drive, and then they pretend there's other stuff there. You know, that's like ten bucks <laughs> a month. iCloud is a bunch of money. Like the the amount of value that you get, like you get all the other Apple stuff in iCloud for free, basically, and what you're paying for is basically like more storage. So the stuff that you get out of Microsoft for that six ninety nine a month is actually 
more value than what you get from Google or Apple for their like 10 bucks a month. You know, I'm just proud of Microsoft that they didn't call it Azure for consumers. (laughs) 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 I I think they're, they're at the point where they're, you know, they've done so many different services and consumer stuff over the years and we don't have to dig in about all of how that, how that's failed. But I think they're kind of, they're at the point where they're like understanding like who uses their products finally. And they're not trying to, and they're not trying to go after like, you know, the next million or whatever. They're, they're like, okay, where can we add some sort of value here and make people actually go for it? So. All right. Well, I think the the story of enterprise software coming to consumers is just going to keep ramping up, uh, especially while everyone is at home. Uh, so Tom, you're going to be on that story. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks and stay safe and well. All right. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. All right, we're back. Other big news. This actually kind of happened early. There's a lot to talk about here, but I suspect we're just going to talk about Sprint Nostalgia. Uh, <laughs> I think I think I know how this is going to go. T-Mobile and Sprint merger closed, and John Ledger uh, stepped down as CEO. He's still on the board, but Mike Sievert, new CEO of T-Mobile, now part of Sprint, third carrier on the scale of AT&T and Verizon. I will say this. Uh, we have talked about this merger and what it means and whether it works and whether Dish Network is going to invent a 7G network using old video, <laughs> like whatever they're going to do. Uh, my position on whether the merger was good or idea or bad is, is clear. We've argued about it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. But it's done now. Yep. And I think what is important for me to reframe my thinking, what I'm going to, the posture I want to take is they got to prove it, mm-hmm. right? They got what they wanted. You know, I started the show by joking that like I'm good at counting days since a promise was made. They made an awful lot of promises about this merger. They made an awful lot of promises about prices not going up, about being competitive with AT&T and Verizon, about building a 5G network, about honestly making jobs in places around the country. That's how they settled a lot of state attorney general lawsuits. We're going to track those promises. I hope they keep all their promises. I want to say that very clearly. I hope they keep all their promises. I hope they are competitive. They, they continue that, that competitive spirit that made a lot of people love T-Mobile to begin with at their larger scale. 
it is weird to think that they're going to do that with a new CEO who is not John Ledger. You know, you might think that I just I don't like John Ledger, uh, but I see John Ledger as like being incredibly smart and savvy. Even I, I think his persona was calculated. I really do. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that it's like not also like sincere. I think that's weirdly, I think that those aren't necessarily opposites. But so huh, very early in his tenure, um, back in the, in those days, uh, my title at The Verge was assistant managing editor. <laughs> and, uh, I was one of the very first people to ask him about net neutrality concerns when he started zero rating music streaming services. It was at one of his uncarrier events. It was pretty early on. And so then I, I got on his list and he likes to poke fun at journalists. And so I tweeted something, whatever. And he, he tweeted at me, uh, isn't your title assistant to the managing editor? Nah, that's pretty good. <laughs> good office thing. And I was very angry about this. I was like, Oh man, he got me. How do I do? And then I realized, cause this was back then the most likely outcome for T-Mobile when John Ledger came on to try and turn it around was they were going to crash and burn because they, you know, didn't get sold to AT&T and they were going to get bought out by SoftBank. And so I replied to him and said, yeah, it's a weird title. Has, uh, you know, the CEO of SoftBank picked your title yet? And he, <laughs> to his credit, he was like, good one, Dieter. Like, you got me. I respect that. That's pretty good. He took T-Mobile from that, from like, everyone's like, well, that's going to, that's going to crash and SoftBank's going to take it over to, he did well. SoftBank was like, well, what the hell do we do? They bought Sprint, which is all of a sudden the, the droopy dog of America. <laughs> Sprint stopped trying. They just stopped caring. And then T-Mobile buys Sprint. Like, incredible turnaround story. I will say that the the, the CEO uh, that SoftBank installed to save Sprint is now the in charge of WeWork. So <laughs> SoftBank true. has like, <laughs> I don't know if they've learned any lessons from that experience. And so it goes. Look, I we are very critical of telecoms is the fact. I think John Ledger, this is like a lion of our industry who is no longer the CEO of this company. And like, he said a lot of things that were true about American wireless carriers and then did the opposite thing. He said, these contracts are dumb in Europe. They don't have contracts like this. We're just going to sell you the phone. If you want an installment plan, we'll sell you the installment plan, but we're unbundling it from the price of service. Yep. I think that was actually the first uncarrier move. Yeah. And the best and by far the best one. Everybody had to follow. Everybody had to follow. Uh, you know, my joke about zero rating is that when you actually have competitive carriers, and they start to compete on zero rating, they end up at net neutrality by default mm -hmm. because they've zero rated everything. Yeah. Like <laughs> they, you sort of like end up there and that has more or less happened. I mean, it's not what I would want, but they've all ended up at unlimited plans that are throttled at 22. Quote unquote unlimited plans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <thank you. laughs> like, uh, like I'm saying, it's not exactly how it wants to play out, but they are all doing the thing where they're saying, okay, we're not going to let video hit your data cap. We're going to downscale it to 480p. You can't see it on screen anyway. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But they're all doing it. Yeah. Right. They are all aggressively trying to, to churn customers because they know that T-Mobile will churn customers to T-Mobile with aggressive pricing. Okay. Like that stuff no CEO was doing, no CEO was coming right out and saying how they thought the industry would go. You know, I, even if you listen to the Vergecast, maybe you know who the CEO of Verizon is. Maybe you do. Maybe you know who the CEO of AT&T is. Most people perceive them, but it's Hans Vesberg and Randall Stevenson, by the way. Those are those guys. Um, I failed your test. <laughs> I had Paul. it. Paul. <laughs> like, maybe you know these names, and they're out there, and, and you know, it, Hans Vesberg, it, it, it CES like goes on a wild tangent about 5G frequencies and it's esoteric and it's hard to understand. Maybe you know these folks. Most people think, and like even 
the people who disagree with me are like AT&T and Verizon basically price against each other. AT&T raises its prices by a dollar. Verizon's not far behind, right? They're, they are the duopoly. Ledger just started calling them the duopoly. And in fact, a lot of people know who John Ledger is. He said, that's a duopoly. That's how they work. I'm not going to do that. He became a character. He became a voice. He, he styled himself. And I do think this is calculated. He styled himself as the voice of a frustrated consumer. All this stuff is like pure genius. Whether or not you believe that like the leaked documents we got in the lawsuit to block the merger indicated that they were trying to merge with Sprint so they become that scale and then eventually raise prices and just become one. May, fine, right? Like that lawsuit is lost. It's in the past. You can read those documents. You can shudder for what might have been whatever. Can they keep that spirit up now that they have the scale? One of my favorite ledger moments actually really recently when he was just talking about their 5G network and how they were going to build it. And it was super relatable. And he was like, they're idiots. AT&T's network is crap. Verizon's network is a mistake. Here's how I'm building mine. Here's how it's going to, and it's like very few telecom CEOs have that ability to communicate, that ability to cut through the noise and that ability to say, here's my plan and then convince you that they're going to do it. Randall Stevenson will tell you about AT&T's plan for HBO Max. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, that's, those are some words you said, bro. Like T-Mobile has, and so I, I want to, you know, in the spirit of, I think, what was it, two weeks ago, I complimented the wireline CEOs for taking away their data caps. Okay. It's, it's a different time. We're at home. We're existentially reconsidering our lives. I will compliment this telecom CEO. I think it is, it is just an incredible run. And I, and I truly hope they just keep their promises. I'll be counting. Yeah. Well, so they've already lit up LTE for some Sprint customers. So T-Mobile's LTE is lit up. Uh, they are promising some 5G software updates for some Sprint 5G phones to take advantage of T-Mobile's 5G network. Uh, so they, they've made some of the early moves that they could. Uh, they have told, uh, they told Heimgarten Burton asked them a million questions. What's going to happen? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And like, look, we're, we're not closing anything tomorrow. We're, you know, we've got three years. Uh, we're not, we promise not to raise prices. We don't have any immediate plans to close down any stores or whatever. So like, hopefully they do things right. Hopefully there aren't mass layoffs. Hopefully like they keep their promises. Uh, we shall see. I imagine like every merger comes with layoffs. This is a bad time to be, you know, laying off your redundant sales or HR staff or whatever, whatever savings you thought you're going to get there. It's a bad time to be closing sprint stores. They know that's a bad look. They promise to keep a lot of that stuff up for three years. Great. The real questions I have is like at the end of uh, two and a half years, right when the, you know, they're getting to the end of, we've promised to keep prices the same. Are they going to roll out some new data plans that are more expensive that are better and they're going to like leave the old ones grandfathered in, right? Are they going to start playing games with the promise? That is something telecom companies do all the time. Sprint customers right now, I think are relatively, our explainer, what happens to Sprint customers now? It's like, the top, it's been the top post on the site all day. And the answer is nothing. Yep. <laughs> the answer is like, maybe in a couple months, the logo on the top of your bill will change, but that's it for now. And you're probably going to get better service if, if your phone supports it. Yeah, if you've got a newer phone and you, you know, they they decide they want to push a software update to it, maybe you'll get better service. Okay, that's a delight. If you've got like some old Android phone, yeah, it's probably going to be very similar for you for a long time, right? Um, so hopefully all that stuff plays out. I think the real questions are, when do they start deprecating Sprint's network to reform that spectrum for 5G? That's a big question. When do they start 
you know, the next iPhone will come out. Is that just going to be a T-Mobile phone? Are they going to make two variants for Sprint and T-Mobile networks right now? Like, I don't know the answer. So I think that stuff is like a little up in the air, but it will get resolved. And then I think I said we were going to do Sprint history. I think Sprint as a company has a long legacy. Uh, Dieter, you, you wrote about it today, but like a bunch of technical decisions Sprint made around WiMAX, around voiceover LTE, all that stuff is going to get unwound. And so a bunch of those devices are going to stop working. Um, not why that device has already stopped working, but like Sprint's legacy CDMA network, their voice network, all that stuff is going to start to go away. And I don't know on what timeline that is yet. And they're not saying, cause they only just closed the deal. Yeah. And I think if you're a Sprint customer and you're like worried about that, I don't think you need to be, I think that your phone's going to work fine. I, th- I think that, I don't know, like people hang on to phones longer than they used to. So like it used to be like, Oh, it's three years and three years are going to get a new phone anyway, whatever. Um, that's not necessarily true anymore. But this is like another thing to like watch T-Mobile, see if they do right by Sprint customers who might get caught in a technical cul-de-sac because their phone depends on a Sprint technology that's getting EOL'd. Yeah. And then, the, and then like next to that, which is not directly to T-Mobile, you know, Dish Network now has a seven-year NVNO agreement. How fast is Dish Network going to start selling phones? This, this like crazy software-defined radio 5G plan. You know, if you think about it, Dish has got to start a network. They need somebody to run the network. John Ledger doesn't have a job. <laughs> oh my God. That would be incredible. That would be great. Be like, I'm doing it again. Oh man. It would be great. I think he's just pretty happy. I think it's he, like a new, a new game plus as a, a telecom CEO. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, that stuff, is, we're, that is even more wait and see. Are you going to keep your promises? Right. And you know, the sort of conventional wisdom is why would you believe them? They've never kept this kind of promise before. Uh, we'll see. I imagine it's harder to build a network when no one can leave their house, right? Like they've got to get a bunch of network technicians up on poles to build stuff and write code for these software defined radios. One just imagines that it's currently harder than you expect. And companies don't generally blatantly, blatantly break promises they've made to the FTC or the DOJ. They yeah. might like skirt around it, but they don't blatantly <laughs> yeah. just get full nah. on. I don't know, man. I feel like yeah. Casey's right. like every other day, Casey's newsletter is like Facebook breaks promise to the FTC. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and what's the FTC going to do? Find them $10? Like it's fine. Uh, yeah. yeah, we'll see. Dieter, do you want to talk about Sprint for two minutes? I feel like it is an it. I mean, just a couple of minutes. We've run long. The the thing that I tried and failed to work into my newsletter like four times. I, I basically I wrote the story that like back in the day, if you were into smartphones, Sprint was a great network because it didn't have all the limitations that Verizon threw at you. It didn't cost as much as AT and T. You didn't have to worry about what whether the global phone was compatible with like you did on AT and T, and you could get like this Sprint employee referral option, which was like made the phones cheap. They were more accessible to people that didn't make a ton of money than the other carriers, and that really mattered. They were one of the early uh, carriers that did uh, unlimited plan, the simply everything plan. Like Dan Hesse was the C- like the CEO who rolled rolled in and like was going to you know change everything, and he like unveiled an unlimited plan and blah blah like like that. He was the John Ledger of his day, only he was you know twenty feet tall. <laughs> Dan Hesse was a very tall CEO. But the thing I wanted to put in there and I just couldn't quite get it is Sprint. Also, they made a bunch of really bad technical decisions, right? WiMAX. They bought Nextel, (laughs) you know, Iden. But when they started, like as a long distance company, like 
they were technically good. They had one of the very first all digital networks uh, for cellular companies. Like they, they moved away from the classic TDMA, like analog cell phone system first. Their logo is that weird yellow fan that is supposed to be representative of a pin bouncing off of a table because their whole spiel was you can hear a pin drop on our network because it's so technically good. Um, so there's like there's an alternative history here where Dan Hesse makes the right call or they have a little bit more money or Ymax turns out not to be a dumpster fire or whatever, where um we would just they would just have succeeded. And maybe that means that like AT&T ends up buying T-Mobile and like we're back at three no matter what, because no matter what, everything ends up terrible. But there was a chance. And so if you were you know, in a certain demographic in the, in the U.S. in like the mid 2000s, like Sprint was a great place to be. It, like there was actually a real community around it too. Like you could go to Hofo, you could like, Sprint's, well, Sprint's thing was called Buzz About Wireless. There were, there were like a handful of forums that you could go to and like talk to other Sprint users and like get into it. And it was, it was weird. Like people were like loyal to Sprint and that made like makes no sense to me now, but they were. Uh, and the same way that people are like loyal to T-Mobile. Like that is a wacky trick to pull off. I don't feel any loyalty to my broadband are, provider. Yeah, none at all. Yeah. Are you saying when, when the pre, cause when the pre came out, I switched to Sprint to use the pre. Did, were you still a Sprint subscriber? Was that was a bit 2008? No, I, I was bouncing around by then. That was 2008. So I had switched to AT&T, uh, for the iPhone and also just to have other phones because I needed to test more Windows mobile phones and more were available by then. And, uh, I didn't include the pre as like another like, oh, good job, Sprint, because the only reason the pre was on Sprint is because they got rejected by Verizon. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say I was reading. I was I, I, everyone should go read Dieter's piece. It's 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 very sweet. It's a it's a it's so good. It's just like a very nostalgic thing to read. The edit I would have made was, and then Sprint started killing everything. Yeah, like Sprint became the kiss of death for Palm tw- twice now. I think uh, they've they've killed it. Um, <laughs> no, the uh, the little Palm was on Verizon. Never mind. Yeah, uh, but the Sprint exclusive just became this kiss of death, and it was it's like remarkable that that has just happened several times. The other thing that really I think is the lesson of Sprint in like inside of this sort of big broadband debate standards debate that we were constantly having Sprint made a billion dollar mistake in picking WiMAX over LTE to get to market first. And they, they never had the scale to get the chips to be smaller, to be less power hungry, uh, to be less hot, quite frankly. And so the phones were just worse, but they had faster network speeds for like all of a year. Right. And that literally that bet, destroyed sprint like it everyone always tells me that's an overread i mean a, a lot of things destroyed sprint but that bet where they they net they didn't have the standard network just ruined that like they they've been fighting back from that bet literally ever since and i think when it came time for 5g everyone learned the lesson like there was not a deep 5g standards debate there's a deep 5g like frequencies debate millimeter wave whatever but like that's more based on where is available spectrum. It's not like it's going to work differently. And I, as far as I can tell, there's not a major carrier in the world. that's not going to build a standards 5g network by the end. There's a little bit of like, we got ahead of the standard to build our network first gamesmanship going on fine. But by the end, it'll be a standardized network across the world. And that is, I swear to God, that is like 
all the telecom executives got in the smoke-filled room at MWC, and they're like, we're not going to sprint this up, right? <laughs> they're like, you know, you know they, they decided it would be a marathon, Eli. <laughs> yeah, like, we're not going to make the WiMAX thing. No one, no one here is doing WiMAX, right? We can all agree. And like that to me is like just it's one of those inflection points in tech history that you know now it's just like sort of ancient history, but it it taught so many people like a crucial lesson about how to build these networks. Okay, Paul, do you have any deep nostalgic th- sprint thoughts? I have just a little. I, okay, two things. Sprint has a better logo and color than T-Mobile. Wow, and it's always been true. And even, despite Sprint, I mean, I feel like now when I look at the Sprint logo, I think of failure. So like <laughs> some of the shine is off, but I still like the aesthetic better. Also, Nextel was a real fun moment. Remember oh, yeah. those walkie-talkie phones? Yeah. Oh, there are people who are still mad at Sprint for blowing Nextel. <laughs> like I wrote that lawsuit piece the other day, and I, or three months ago, however, what day is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> however long ago that was. <laughs> And like there was one half-hearted Nextel joke in it, and like people were treating me like I'm still mad about Nextel. They really screwed that up. There was just like like a certain certain dude loved just strolling into the office with his Nextel phone deep <laughs> in, just <laughs> blaring all his conversations. All right, that's it. We'll be right back. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. All right, Paul Miller. Mm-hmm. Every week, my friend. That's right. What is it called? I do a segment every week, and it's called "If I Were a Rich Man," sung to the tune of "If I Were a Rich Man" <laughs> from the musical <laughs> "Fiddler on the Roof." <laughs> the, Dieter, you have to stop singing. <laughs> Asus has re-upped its membership. And the keyboard in the front club. Yes. They have shown up in such a big way with the Asus ROG Zephyrus Duo 15. So they had already done this dual screen laptop, right? The big problem. So you have keyboard in the front, right? Where your palms used to be on 
crappy laptops. And then <laughs> above the keyboard deck, it was a screen. Yes. And then you also have a regular screen. Yep. The obvious problem anybody could see it the first time that they saw this laptop is that that the flat screen above your keyboard is at a bad viewing angle. So it's going to be kind of hard to use. And it also there's also a giant bezel on the main screen underneath it. Also that. So now they have sort of like the Leonardo da Vinci of of laptop manufacturing. <laughs> they have created a hinge that also while you're opening the laptop, the the second screen tilts up towards you. And now it's at a perfect angle for glanceable information. It's touchscreen. You can use a stylus. It's just, it is so cool. And it's $3,000. And I am so far away from having $3,000. But it's really just the greatest laptop on the planet right now. What I, what I just, I'm just gazing at this, this image. There's like people like me who are like, I wonder if this will be like, this device will be good on an airplane. Like I think about that. <laughs> what? And then there's like another group of people for whom that is absolutely not a consideration. <laughs> Right, like n- at no point did the designers of this machine care about an airplane seat back or even like a first class experience. Yeah. Like they were just like, nope, <laughs> this is pretty much gonna be on your desk at home. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is great. I'm very excited for it. Uh, we're not gonna have time to get into it at the end of the show, so I just want to point out that a bunch of laptop stuff happened. Uh, Madakachin reviewed the Asus RG Zephyrus with an AMD chip, and um, it is. St- Stunningly good. And it really throws down on uh, Intel's 10th gen stuff, which is now starting to come out alongside new NVIDIA stuff. So like a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of laptop stuff happened. Uh, but we might save that if we can for next I, week because it's way too much to get into today. We should, we'll just have Monica on next week. Yeah, I think we'll just have Monica on. I just wanted to, to say when you're talking about airplanes, right? A lot of these new Intel laptops that are coming out with the new NVIDIA stuff are big gaming laptops. And I think the interesting thing about like the 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 AMD laptop is probably not going to beat most of them in gaming. It, it looks like it has a, a probably a stronger CPU. The CPU is just astonishing. It's really wonderful. But that might be your gaming on an airplane laptop compared to a lot of these other ones which actually might be you might be able to get more game for your buck from the Intel laptops it looks like. But if you want a, a a slightly smaller, slightly better power wise, um, power efficiency, gaming laptop, the Zephyrus G14 might be the might be the the, the ticket. Yeah. yeah, and Monica actually reviewed that one this week. We should we'll, we'll just have her on next yep. week. <laughs> it's it's like it's that time to re rethink laptops. So we should just do that. Assuming the you know the world is still here. Which, you know, 50-50. All right, Dieter, some, there's like Apple drama. Man, any other week we would spend the entire Vergecast doing this. So out of nowhere, Amazon's Prime video app on iOS just suddenly had like rent and buy buttons on it. And people were like, <laughs> 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 
And obviously the history here is that has never been allowed in any iOS app before. If you sell digital goods in iOS, not only do you have to sell it through Apple, you are not allowed to have a whisper to a reference to the possibility that you could maybe pay for it in any other way. If you have a link yeah. out to your website, if you say, hey, you could subscribe on our website, you get rejected. And so to go from that to all of a sudden there's just straight up buy buttons in the Amazon app, it's Without shocking. the 30% cut. Because you can sell digital goods on in iOS, but you have to give Apple a cut. But this was buy buttons at the same price as a regular Amazon store. So everybody asked Apple for comment, and uh, kind of shockingly, Apple had a comment, and here it is. I'm just going to read this. Um, and uh, whew. Apple has an established program sure for premium subscription video entertainment providers to offer a variety of customer benefits, including integration with the Apple TV app, AirPlay 2 support, TVOS apps, Universal Search, Siri support, and, where applicable, single or zero sign-in. On qualifying premium video entertainment apps such as Prime Video, Altice One, and Canal Plus, customers have the option to buy or rent movies and TV shows using the payment method tied to their existing video subscription. So, lots of things to unpack here. The idea that this program is established is very interesting <laughs> because Mark Gurman, uh, Mark Gurman, uh, who knows quite a bit about Apple, tweeted like, yeah, this is established, but I never heard of it. And you know that I would have. <laughs> it's like, yep, you, you definitely would have. Uh, two, the, 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 the thing that apparently qualifies you for not having to pay the Apple tax is being a quote, premium subscription video entertainment provider. And I would just like to interrogate that for a moment. What makes you a premium video, premium subscription video entertainment provider? What 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 is it? It's pronounced Sven. <laughs> like, is Netflix a premium video subscription entertainment provider? I think the trade here is actually the other thing. What's that? That list of things. Oh right? yeah, sure. You're in the TV app. You get to use Siri. That is a bunch of Apple features, right? Yeah. You get AirPlay support, whatever it is. The trade is what does Apple want of the Apple TV most of all? They want the TV app to be the actual interface. Yeah. Okay. So they got to give you whatever they're going to give you to get it. Yeah. So they, it's basically, we'll give you your 30% back if you integrate with the TV app in this suite of proprietary Apple things. Yep. Which is not a bad deal. Like, it's a deal. You can take it or leave it. Netflix does not want to integrate with that TV app. They don't want to do it. They want you in the Netflix interface just watching that next episode of Tiger King every every minute, right? That's I think that I, – I don't know, but my – inclination and the, the rumors out there are very much that Apple can't get people in the TV app. They can't get them to use that long, long set of other services. Uh -huh. And if you want to take your cut back, you actually end up agreeing to that long list of support that mm -hmm. bolsters Apple's operating system and bolsters their, which is, again, maybe that's a fair trade. But, but okay, that's a fair trade. But say you're in the business of uh, not making a TV app, but you make an, another uh, premium video subscription service. Like, I don't know. Fortnite. <laughs> how do you how do you get that deal? How does anybody else get that deal? How does how do you like the only way to get that deal is to go into a smoke filled room with Apple and like make that deal? Every other developer just doesn't have access to it. And I mean, so Tim Sweeney, CEO of Epic, noted App Store curmudgeon. I guess is a fine way to put it. 
Uh, he did tweet about this, and he said, congratulations to Apple on their move towards opening up the iOS app store to payment competition. It's <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> pretty good. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. I mean, it, yeah, it's pretty good. I think so. The other thing that is true is that Apple and Amazon are, have been pretty cozy on the TV side. Yeah, they've been they've been moving closer to each other and being just a little bit friendlier. And there's there's been they've been make cutting deals on Apple stuff getting sold on Amazon. They're like they they actually like started tamping down on third party sellers. So like they've been talking to each other for a while now. Yeah, and uh, you know if you're LT LT1 and Canal Plus are cable companies. It, it mentions payment method tied to their existing video subscription. So this is the idea that you have, I already have a Prime subscription. I just want to use the, the card on file to also pay for things from Apple's interface. Well, right, right now, Apple's interface kind of makes you think that you've misclicked and that you like can't buy something. But like, there's a possibility of like incredible nesting doll stuff happening here, right? Because both Apple and Amazon try to get you to pay for HBO through their interface. I don't. Hmm. No, it just says buy and rent movies or TV shows. I don't know that the Amazon app actually sells you HBO. I mean. Well, it does on the Fire TV. Yeah. Is what I'm no, not inside the thing. But yeah. There's only one way to find out, and that is for me to just try to spend some dumb money on my Apple TV tonight. <laughs> so uh, that's premium video. It's a Sven. Uh, that's great. You know what Amazon <laughs> still can't do is sell you a book in the Kindle app. Yep. Right. And it's like, great. It's a tiny bit towards payment competition, but the, the, there's all this stuff that people have asked for forever. Uh, Spotify's still not happy, right? Like, you still can't just sign up for Spotify without going. Netflix, I'm sure, is still complaining about this stuff. It's a tiny little move. It's good. I'm happy. I'm sure Apple doesn't see a lot of... Apple cannot be that worried that people are going to buy movies on Prime Video instead of the Apple TV movies app right now. Like They're not. No. Right? Like I think they just want to fill out the TV app, and they want to get people to use it, and this is a, a carrot you can throw that's not going to cost them any money. Whether the real one is Netflix, and they... I don't see a path from here to there, but we'll see how it goes. Okay. We've waited. We've waited. The real drama, the hottest drama in tech this week is that Android users will no longer be able to tell if it's raining. Apple bought Dark Sky. Oh. There it goes. There it goes. Are you opening Dark Sky on your Android phone for the last time? Press, no. Oh, you're uninstalling it? No. You'll never be able to get it back. Oh. It's over. <laughs> wow. Uh, I am shocked that there is this much drama heartache over a weather app being sold to Apple. People are very angry. I, 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 I tweeted a little bit too fast. I said, it feels incredibly petty for them to shut down the Android app and the API. The API is going to last till 2021. So that's like pretty good. They shut down the Android app, uh, I think July one, and then a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of other weather apps use dark skies, weather information via their API. And that is getting shut down at the end of 2021. So quite a while from now, um, but it's interesting, you know, like dark sky sells access to that API. So like Apple could have just kept that business going, but they, they chose not to. And the dark sky app on iOS is sticking around. So it's unclear like what the strategy is here as a paid app, right? As a paid app. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I'm sure in iOS 15, it'll, you know, they're deprecated and I'll just be the weather app in iOS. That, that's, that's what, what, when I, when I got over my anger, <laughs> I, the, the way I started thinking about it is you, a lot of people don't buy apps. A lot of people don't even download apps. Fewer people buy apps. And Dark Sky as like a differentiator for as a built-in, like the weather on your operating system is so cool versus like the way I think of Dark Sky is phones are great. 
because one of the things you can do on phones is you can install Dark Sky on them. But as an operating system vendor, like you could differentiate by having such a cool app. So it kind of makes sense in that. It's just annoying. I've been challenging myself to think, because like, Dieter, you wrote this in the newsletter, like Amazon bought Eero, and we were just like sad for a while. Right? We we're just like, oh, that company didn't make it. We like them. It seems to be going fine. Here, DarkSide is beloved. Apple bought them. Apple's history with acquisitions is actually not wonderful. Remember Beats? They seem deeply respected inside of Apple. Uh, they bought they bought the Bedit sleep tracker. No one's ever heard from them. Like on Shazam, Apple bought Shazam. What yep. happened to them? <laughs> like, uh, so like their history of these acquisitions is a little little jumpy. At the uh-huh. same time, what did Darkside prove? Like, a it's a unique product. They synthesized available weather data to do a different kind of prediction. That's really cool. They proved that there's a market for paid weather API. Um, they proved there's a market for paid weather apps. They did not steal your location, bundle it up, and sell it, which a bunch of other shady weather apps do. Okay, so then they got they got sold to Apple. All that means is there's a market for that thing for someone else to serve, right? And uh, my my inbox is full of those apps. <laughs> Great. So like, uh, it's bizarre that like for me to be like, well, that's fine. And then my other question is like. Google's entire mission statement is like, we use cutting edge AI to be helpful to you. And they don't appear to be able to tell Android users if it's going to rain. And it's like, shouldn't they just do it? Shouldn't Google's weather native Android already be this good? It's it shocking I, to me yeah. that dark sky is that much better. Back when we used to go outside, I used to ask Google assistant what the weather was every day. And like, that seemed fine, but it's weird that, I mean, like you're saying, people love things and people love dark sky. Maybe it's just that reaction, but it's shocking that the default Google weather service was not so good that a market could even exist. I don't know. Is yeah. Android is weather on Android just not good? Like I no weather on Android is, is fine. It, it it just it doesn't have that like the thing that dark sky does is it. I mean, it's beautiful. First of all, it is a beautiful app, um, and it's very very well designed, uh, which. Sorry to say, is not always a, a thing you can expect in an Android app. And it also, like, gives you the little ping if you want it. Hey, it's going to rain in 15 minutes. And, like, that feels like magic. And it, like, is often right. It's usually right. And that's, like, the one – like, Google's weather app is fine. It's always right. Blah, 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 blah. But uh, it's not as instant, and it doesn't give you that, like, that ping. They could maybe turn it on tomorrow if they wanted to. Um, it's sitting there in the notification tray by default on most Android phones that have got like a Google assistant on it. Um, so it's like there, um, but it's not like actively letting you know, Hey, it's going to rain. Yeah. I just think it's uh, that, that to me was like, it's strange to me that such a market exists for it's going to rain on a device where the entire cell of the app, the operating system is like, it's built by the AI company, but uh, maybe, maybe Google will do a thing. Like it's an opportunity for them too. I just uh, what I still don't have is a rationale for why Apple bought Dark Sky. I mean, they they want the good weather app, right? They probably just want a better weather app. I mean, you remember back in the day, like when Yahoo released its weather app, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, this is great!" And then like <laughs> it made Apple step up its weather app game. Like, yeah, weather app's a big deal. It's like the thing that everybody uses. The Weather Channel exists for a reason. <laughs> It's funny because it is the one thing I use voice assistance for more consistently than anything else. Okay, we've gone a little long. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, we'll be back on Tuesday. I'm actually interviewing Kevin Scott, the CTO of Microsoft, about AI. I'm going to just ask him. It's, it's been an hour of me being like, how do you predict the weather? We'll see how that goes. 
I'm not, oh, we're going to ask him some good questions, but I'm excited to talk to him. He's a really smart dude. We're back on Friday with the chat show. We're doing this at home. Please let us know how it sounds. I, I, again, I suspect we're doing okay, but let us know. We're, we're trying to make it better consistently, constantly. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, I hope you're staying home. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're just really checking the weather. Thanks to Tom Warren for joining us at the top. And we'll be back next week. With, uh, we're definitely going to have Monica to talk about laptops. All right, that's it. Rock and roll. Paul. Paul. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.